Aaron. Well, beautiful singing. So I've not met you. My name is Aaron, and I'm the preaching pastor here at Red Village, and uh, we're glad you're with us uh, today on Connection Sunday, which you'll hear more about uh, at the end of our service. Um, but if you have a Bible with you, if you'd open up to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we're going to be studying chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. So if you're new here, so this is a book that we've been working through for, I don't know, a year and a half or so. And so today we, uh, we're in chapter 26. And so this time here, I'm just going to read the first five verses, and then I'm going to pray, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. And then um, after the prayer, then we're just going to work through verse by verse. So if we have a Bible open, keep them open. Okay, we're going to walk through uh, just all of chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. So if you want to follow along as I read uh, the sacred text. For Samuel chapter 26, this is what the word says. Then the Ziphites came to Saul Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the land of Hiakiah, which is on the east of Jeshom? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness to Ziph, and 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. So encamped on the hill of Hiakiah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshamon. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness. David sent out spies and learned that Saul indeed had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Okay, so that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your word. Lord, you have sought it fit in your grace and your wisdom to use preaching to communicate your word to us. And so, Lord, I do pray through the power of your spirit you would bless this time. God, please help me to be a good communicator of your word. Please protect me from error. Please help the congregation be good listeners to your word. I pray you use this time just to draw us closer to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so for those of you here who are fairly new to Red Village, maybe even visiting us for the first time, let me just share some uh, brief cliff notes on our church history. So Red Village Church will officially be 13 years old this coming winter. I was 13 years ago in December of 2010. The church received her first members. It's a group of 14 of us. And by the way, college students, over half of them were college students. And they came together to sign our church covenant where we're descending our collective hearts, fulfilling a set of ideals that we believe we see in the scriptures on what a healthy church should be striving towards. Within that, as Red Village Church receives her first members, we did so with a simple model, uh, which we hope would represent our newly formed church family, which is a simple model that just simply says, Red Village Church, where a wooden cross and an empty tomb mean everything. Meaning, what Jesus accomplished for us in his death and resurrection from the dead on the third day, would be at the core of all that we are doing and all that we are hoping to accomplish as a newly formed church family. As mentioned, this was 13 years ago this coming December. And God, in his grace and his kindness of the years, he has continued to sustain our little church family by continuing to bring new people into the church family. People who have signed the same church covenant, who have added their voices to our family model. So 13 years of receiving new members, which testify to 13 years of the evidence of God's grace on our church family. Now, in 13 years, a lot can happen in church life, which certainly has been true of us. In 13 years, we have had an ever-changing family in terms of who makes up our church family. So our beloved city here of Madison is a transient place, so the makeup of our church has reflected that. 
where every year it seems like a good portion of our church move either out of Madison or maybe a different part of the, the country, at times even a different part of the world, which has included a significant number have left our church to go to the foreign mission field, which has also been huge evidence of grace on our family, how God in his grace has chosen to use our church family to proclaim our family model, right, the wooden cross, empty tomb, literally all over the world. And it's an incredible thing uh, that we've been able to experience that as a church family. But with all the people coming and going, this is something that can leave us weary, right, to see all the people coming and going. Over our 13 years, we've seen, uh, we've had several different places where which we've met. So we started meeting out on Sunday nights in a small church building near Camp Randall. From there, we met in several different schools that required us to set up and take down every Sunday morning, which if you're here and part of those set up and take down teams, you know, that was a lot of work. Five years ago, we were able to purchase this building here to be a more permanent home for us, which on one end meant no more weekly setup and takedown, but on the other end, having a building has meant a lot of ongoing work that has been needed to like, kind of maintain the building. So over 13 years, a lot of work in the church family just to create space for us to meet together on Sunday mornings, which itself can cause some weariness. And we consider all the work put into the various ministries that we do as we meet. There's even more work there, which can create even more weariness. I mean, for us, just consider how many different people are serving today and all the different areas serving in the church. There's a lot. And now multiply that over every Sunday, over 13 years, right? a lot of work. And for us, even though we do think what we're doing right now on Sunday morning is the most important central ministry that we have as a church, we know that's not the only thing that we do here. Uh, like we have small groups, Wes mentioned this in the prayer, that meet throughout the week, which required a lot of work and a lot of effort. Uh, from us at the start, we've also tried to do our best to find like organic ways to connect with each other, where we're caring for one another, where we're in each other's lives. So over 13 years, it meant a lot of work putting uh, things together like wedding showers and baby showers and meal trains, uh, helping others move, uh, offering babysitting, uh, helping out on home projects, or just simply the work that needed to be a friend, to be good to one another. We're like just doing things like you know, getting together to play board games or watch a movie or just to hang out. Or, or maybe to support one another in different activities we're in. Right? There's been a, a lot of work, a lot of good work, weary work, done over 13 years, which we've done not to try to earn God's love, but because through Jesus Christ, because the wooden cross, empty tomb, we believe that actually we're loved, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we believe that we're loved in such a way, now we are now compelled to go and do good for the glory of God. So I share all that this morning, not simply to give the, those who are new or visiting with us just some cliff notes on our church, but I share all that because I also want to share a couple other things. So first, I share all this because I wanted to share one of the ongoing concerns that I've had the past 13 years here at Red Village Church, which is the concern that over time, as a church family, like we will grow weary in doing good. It's so weary that we might be tempted to stop doing good altogether. And I particularly have that concern for those who have been with us for any amount of time. There's a lot of weary work done over the years. And I think we know this. It's easy maybe to start out doing good, right? It's easy to start doing the good things God has to do, whatever it might be. But it's so much harder to continue to do good, to persevere in doing good. Because the good things at times can be very weary things. So weary that we might be tempted to stop doing them. In fact, this concern that I have is really not my concern that I came up with my own. It's actually one of the concerns of the New Testament itself where multiple times in the New Testament speaks to just the, the difficult reality of continuing to do good in ways that honor the Lord. Galatians 6 says, Let us not grow weary in doing good, 
For in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. 2 Thessalonians 3. As to you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, similarly, 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. I said again, it can be somewhat easy to start out doing good, but it can be much harder, cause much more weariness to continue to do good. Second, I want to mention this at the start today, just to actually set us up for our text, which is a text where we see David continue to do good, to do good in God honoring ways, even though this had to be weary work for him to do. Weary work, I'm sure he faced temptation to quit altogether. Okay, now before we look back at our text, let me briefly remind us where we've been in our study of 1 Samuel, just to help us recognize how weary work this had to be for David, who's one of the central figures in our text today. So if you may remember, David first came on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we met him as a young, overlooked shepherd boy who was unexpectedly anointed to be the king of Israel, the king coming from God's own heart, which made David much different than the present king at the time, a man named Saul, who was king because of the sinful hearts of God's people. In 1 Samuel, shortly after David was anointed king, uh, which required him to, you know, uh, uh, shortly after he was anointed king, uh, he had to wait because Saul was still on the throne. And while he was waiting, we see that his popularity began to increase by those around him, including even Saul himself, like David, because we've seen how much good David did to Saul. Uh, he provided comfort for Saul when Saul was being tormented. Uh, he did great military victories for Saul by defeating some of Saul's enemies on the battlefield. In chapter 16 and 17 of 1 Samuel, we see that not only did David quickly become popular among those uh, in his inner circle, but he also became popular really throughout the entire land which really first started when he famously killed the giant man, Goliath, where David basically became an overnight celebrity, a star-like status throughout the kingdom. So in our study for Samuel, as David became more and more popular by the various good works that he was doing, Saul started to have a change of his heart and attitudes towards David. And you may remember, Saul became more and more bitter and paranoid towards David. Because Saul began to recognize that David was a threat to his power and his control as the king. So from chapter 18 of 1 Samuel onward, Saul started to act out in bitterness and paranoia in very stark ways, where he obsessively tried to take David's life multiple different ways, multiple different times, starting with the attempt to try to kill David by pinning, or yeah, kill David by pinning David to the wall with his trusty spear. And as Saul was on his obsessive quest to kill David, naturally it put David and a small band of his men on the run, where they attempted to hide from Saul in order to save their own lives. Now, we don't know exactly how much time had passed from chapter 18 to our text today in chapter 26, but I think it's safe to say there's some real time had passed. In fact, if we were to back up to when David was anointed to be king in chapter 16, when David is still actually in his teens most likely, scholars think it was actually 13 years from then when he was anointed to be king to our text today. Maybe about four years since Saul first tried to kill David to our text today. So some real time here where a lot had happened in David's life where in that time, David continued to do a lot of good, including saving Saul's life, which he did just a couple chapters back in chapter 24. And this good work, to say it again, had to leave David weary. It had to have temptation that came with it to give up in the good that he was doing. So that being said, if you want to look back with me, starting at verse 1 of our passage, as mentioned, I'm just going to walk through verse by verse for us. 
Verse 1, we read that the Ziphites came to Saul, who was at his home in Gibeah. And they came to Saul because they had something they wanted to tell him. Uh, King Saul, is not David, you know, your rival who you're seeking to kill, is not David, is he not hiding himself over there on the hill of Hialeah, the east of Jessamon? No, just a couple thoughts here. So we already met the Ziphites in chapter 23. We're at that sea, much like today, they went to Saul to, in a sense, like rat David out and betray David by offering up to Saul where David is hiding. So as we work through our text today, we're going to come across a lot of parallels that have already happened to David in 1 Samuel. And I think these parallels actually only made it that much harder for David to not grow weary in doing good. At least for me, like all these same parallels of life, this would have made me like cynical. Cynical to the point where I just like going to like throw my hands up in the air and quit. For example, if I was David here, I'd be like, wait, the Ziphites again? They're up to their same old antics? Here they are ratting me out again. Man, I'm so sick of these people. Why can't they just leave me alone? I mean, think about it. Just think how easy it would be to be cynical here. On the flip side, think how hard it would be to continue to trust the Lord and do good. So I'll we'll circle back to this at the end in just a bit here. But take note that Psalm 54, this is written by David, when the Ziphites went to Saul to tell him, is not David hiding among us? Okay, so I mentioned this a few weeks back, but so many of the Psalms that many of us love, they're actually written by David when he's on the run in 1 Samuel, where David's in these weary places where he's waiting upon the Lord, waiting upon the Lord's timing to officially become the king. In these weary places that David continued to find himself in, rather than running from the Lord, David's model in the Psalms is to run to the Lord in worship. So here, rather than being cynical and bitter towards the Ziphites in Psalm 54, he used these evil acts towards him to actually drive him into worship, which is the ultimate good that we must set our hearts to, to worship our God. Verse 2, I'm going to take your eyes there. As Saul received the news of the Ziphites, we see that this was news to Saul's ear. So we read that he rose and went down to the wilderness, taking 3,000 of his best chosen men with him to seek David out which is another parallel to chapter 24, where likewise Saul took 3,000 of his men to find David, who in chapter 24 is hiding in the En Gedi. By the way, I mentioned this a couple weeks back, but I think it's worth mentioning here. In chapter 24, after David spared Saul's life, remember how Saul, with tears in his eyes, proclaimed that he was going to be good to David from that point going forward, where Saul seemingly was like accepting that David was going to be the king? Now here today in our chapter, just two chapters later, right, Saul's already going back on his word. Where our text today is proving that Saul really wasn't repenting of his actions in chapter 24. Rather, he was just showing maybe a little bit of remorse, some worldly sorrow, which we see come up again in our text today in just a bit. Verse 3. So Saul and his army of 3,000 arrived. We really set up camp on the hill, which is near the road. And as Saul set up the camp, no doubt David and his men heard and saw uh, this army coming. And because Saul had such a large army compared to David's 600 men, we see that David decided the wise thing to do is just to remain hidden in the wilderness to try to figure out like what they're going to do from there rather than try to engage in Saul in battle. So verse 4, as David and his men came together to put a plan together, they thought first it was maybe best to send out a few spies or a few scouts just to make sure that indeed that was Saul who was there, maybe not some other type of military party. And our text is seemingly as the scouts return to David in verse 5, they confirmed that indeed this was Saul who had now arrived upon the scene. And as this 
information was uh, confirmed, reads that David got up, and perhaps surprisingly in our text, he goes and heads right to Saul's camp. Now, if it was me, right, I would have went the opposite direction. But here, brave David went right to where Saul was. And as he got to the camp, we see that he was able to find some type of high ground where he could like look down on Saul's camp to try to get a better lay of the land, which also allowed David to be able to pinpoint the place where Saul would lay, which would have been the most well-protected place of the camp, right next to the commander of the army, which you see in our text is a man named Abner, the son of Ner, which is someone we actually met in chapter 14, where we see that Abner was Saul's cousin. In our text today, with Saul's tent in the middle, with Abner's tent right next to him, we see the rest of the camp was camped all around, like seemingly like multiple layers of circles of tents around Saul, which made it almost like impossible to get to Saul, which, which is kind of the point here. Verse 5, as David got a lay of the camp, we see that he had another surprising idea, which was an idea, an idea, a desire to actually go down to the camp of Saul, to you know, make his way through the circle of tents all the way to Saul's tent. So in verse 6 of our text, you want to take your eyes there with this desire. David started to ask those around him, like who wanted to join him on this mission? Where he specifically asked Elimelech the Hishite and Job's brother Abishai, the son of Zerah. To which you read, Abishai agreed to David in his said desire, but simply told David, you know what? I'm in. David, indeed, I will go down with you. Now, let's just pause here. Let's not underestimate how much courage and trust that these two men had here. This was dangerous, like to say the least, to try to make their way through the camp. Verse 7, with the confirmed desire of these two men in place, we see at nightfall they headed down to the camp. So even though they're acting in courage and trust, they want to exercise some wisdom here. They didn't want to like, test the Lord. So it's wisest to wait to go at night to sneak around the camp under the cover of darkness. So in the text, as nightfall came, we read that Saul and Abner and the rest of the camp, they fell fast asleep. And our text tells us as Saul slept, he did so next to his trusty spear stuck into the ground right next to his head. Hard to know, but perhaps this is the same spear that he tried multiple times to pin David to the wall with. Okay, now it's hard to know why Saul lay right with his spear next to him in the ground. Maybe there's nothing significant for Saul to do that, but I do think that this spear has some symbolism of authority. So perhaps even as Saul slept, he wanted others to know that he was in charge. He is the king. So verse 8. As David and Abishai snuck around, amazingly, we see they're actually going to make their way all the way through the layers of tents, all the circles, 3,000 men worth, and they were able to get all the way into the innermost, heavily protected part of the camp, Saul's tent. And as they made their way all the way to Saul, we read that Abishai said something similar to David that his men in chapter 24 said. I uh, remember that when Saul was like relieving himself in the cave and David was hiding, and how the men said, hey, listen, Saul is here. Go kill him. We see in our text, there's another parallel from Abishai. David, God has given your enemy into your hands this day. Right? Almost the same thing. In our text today, Abishai to David, David, just say the word. Please let me go over to Saul, let me grab his spear, and let me give him a taste of his own medicine by letting me strike him down with one swift blow that will surely take his life. David, listen, I do not need to strike him a second time. One is all I would need. Now, think how tempting this had to be here for David. 
to act on this counsel by Abishai, to, to justify giving word to go strike Saul dead. I mean, after all, think about this. This opportunity has now come to him a second time. A second time, he gets basically the same counsel. So why not? Why not this time go kill Saul? After all, if it was me, I could justify it. I mean, I've already done plenty of good to Saul over the years. I mean, just two chapters back, I already spared Saul's life once. And in really, in the text here, this is Saul is the one who went against his word in chapter 24 when he said he wasn't going to kill me anymore. So really, at this point, Saul has it coming. If I was David, I'm just too tired, I'm just too weary of all the good things I've done over the years. At this point, I think I kind of earned it. I deserve it. All this good clearly is not paying off. However, I was keeping the text. We read that's not what David did. David did not grow weary in doing good. So yet another parallel in verse 9. We see that David responded back to Abishai in a very similar fashion than he did to the men in the cave, where he now disciples Abishai with his words and with his actions. In the text, David to Abishai, Abishai, do not destroy Saul. For Abishai, who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed? Which is referring to before David was anointed to be king, Saul actually was anointed to be king. Abishai, do not harm the Lord's anointed. For who can strike down the Lord's anointed and still be guiltless? Which here the implied answer is no one. To strike down the Lord's anointed, this comes with guilt. So verse 10, Abishai, rather than striking down Saul, let's trust the Lord here. Let's be patient. Let's not take matters into our own hands. In the text, Abishai, as the Lord lives, we can trust a time is coming when Saul will not live. We can trust that either the Lord himself will strike him down, or perhaps Saul will just grow old and it will be his time to die, or perhaps even eventually Saul will just die in battle. Abishai, however it happens, whenever it happens, Saul's life, it will come to an end. But let's not be the ones responsible for that happening. Let's, let's continue to do good. Let's continue to spare Saul's life. David to Abishai. Let's trust the Lord. Trust his timing. In our text, believe that indeed justice will come. Because of that, David to Abishai in verse 11 of our text, Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David to Abishai, Abishai, what are we going to do? Rather than taking the spear to kill Saul, Let's actually just grab the spear at his head, as well as a jar of water. Let's head back. And let's leave Saul alone. Let's spare his life. So that, verse 12, we see David took the spear in the water. The two men made their way out of the camp, back through all the circle of tents. Doing so, and our text tells us in ways that no man saw it or knew what just happened. Rather, the entire camp slept through it all. Our text tells us this happens because the Lord actually put Saul and his camp into a deep sleep. So Saul and his men in a deep sleep, we read in verse 13, David is able to get all the way to the other side of the camp, where he's able to stand afar, on top of a hill, you know, a safe distance away. And as David got a safe distance away, we see in the text that it was time now for the camp to wake up. 
So in verse 14, we see that David is the alarm clock here. And he calls out to the army, specifically to Abner, shouting out, Will you not answer, Abner? And as David's voice woke up the camp, and as this question landed on Abner's ear, we read that Abner is a little uncertain just who it was calling out to him from the hill. You know, maybe there's still a bit of fog that comes, that comes out of a deep sleep. So in our text, we read as Abner is like rubbing the sleep out of his eyes, we see that he responds back to David, uh, Who are you? Who are you that calls to the king? Uh, identify yourself. To which David responds back to Abner in verse 15 with a series of questions for him. Uh, Abner, are you not a man? Uh, who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over the Lord, the king? Basically, in short, Abner, here you are, the commander of the king's army, a man with an incredible position of honor and responsibility, yet you don't even know that one of the people, which here in the text, I think is speaking of David himself, came in to destroy the king, your lord. Abner, how could you let that happen? Why were you not faithful to do the good thing given to you and watch over the king? Verse 16. Abner, the thing that you've done, sleeping through it all, it was not good. It was not good that you did not protect the king. David to Abner. Abner, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. And you deserve to die because you are not faithful with your responsibility. You did not do the good thing you were entrusted with. Which, by the way, might be a little bit of a warning for us. In the text, Abner, you do not keep watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. And Abner, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that people came into the camp to destroy the king, how about you take a closer look to see what I'm holding in my hands? Does this look familiar to you? You know, Abner, even with sleep still in your eyes, you can see that I'm holding the king's spear in a jar of water that was at his head. Abner, faithless Abner, that's how close I was to Saul. That's how easy it would have been for me to take his life because you failed to do the good thing of protecting his life. Verse 17. As David puts Abner on blast, we see another parallel occur. As we see that Saul was also awakened by David's voice. And as Saul could hear the voice coming from the hill, he started to recognize who the voice belonged to. So similar to chapter 24, the scene of the cave. We see in our text today, Saul calls out, Is that your voice, my son, David? To which David responds back, uh, Yes, it is my voice, my lord, O king. Which here, this is actually continuing good by David here. Like he's like now showing honor to Saul. That could not have been an easy thing for him to do. Verse 18, as David identified himself to Saul, David then asked Saul a series of questions here. Uh, Saul, like, why do you continue to pursue after me, even though I have proven nothing but being your faithful servant? Uh, Saul, tell me my charges. Tell me, what have I done? Why are you so obsessed with taking my life? Tell me, Saul, what is the exact evil that is on my hands? Why do you keep trying to take my life? 
you know, I think we have the sense here in the text. Like David, he's like exasperated here. It's almost like he seriously Saul, like we're doing this again. Like not only do I have to do this again because the Ziphites ratted me out, but seriously Saul, I'm needing to ask you the basic same questions I've already asked you, questions that you know prove my innocence. Seriously, we, we got to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Verse 19. Therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of me, his servant. If it is the Lord God, Saul, who has stirred you up against me for something I've done that was wrong, then I pray the Lord accept an offering where I will seek his forgiveness. And here, David to Saul, if I did evil, and if I brought this on myself, listen, I will own it. In the text, but Saul, if you are stirred up against me because of men, which I'm sure refers back to previous conversations between these two in chapter 24, where David called out Saul for his foolish counsel, who only inflamed Saul's bitter, jealous, paranoid heart. So if all this continues to happen, as if you're sinful, foolish men who you continue to listen to in the text, may they be cursed before the Lord. For their sinful, evil hearts have driven many out this day, and they drove me out in ways that now I have no share in the heritage of the Lord. Which this here, this is reference to Saul's kingdom being part of the promised land of God for God's people. So, and we learn at the start of 1 Samuel, remember how the Ark of God was located, which is where the essential location of worship was to be for God's people in the Old Testament. So what David is saying here is that he is on the run because of evil men in ways that now he's not able to worship the Lord in ways that he desires to do so. Saul, his evil men, they're taking that from him. And not only was Saul and evil men taking that worship from him in the heritage of the Lord, we see at the end of verse 19, as David is on the run, he's having to hide out in foreign lands. Whereas it is like the men in Saul's corner were saying, hey David, how about you just leave here and go serve other gods rather than serve the one true and living God. Which really, like this is the opposite of what scripture teaches. This is the opposite of what we want to do as a church. We don't want to drive people from the Lord in worship. Like our heart, our desire is more and more people to come to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ in worship. Verse 20. Now therefore, Saul, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like the one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. This is another parallel, chapter 24, where David likewise questioned Saul why he was spending so much time, so much energy, so much effort, simply trying to kill him, even though for David in his own eyes, he's nothing more than like a dead dog, a, a single flea. Which is, I think this here, this is David continually trying to not count himself more highly than he ought. He, he's trying to be humble here, which, which we all also know, that's like weary work. Naturally, we want to count ourselves more highly than we ought, whether it be through pride that puffs up or even pride that cowers down. Here in the text, David's trying to stay humble. He's trying to stay humble, even though he's frustrated, he's exasperated, he's weary. Verse 21, as David confronted Saul, you guessed it, another parallel, where we read that Saul responds back to David like he did in previous passages. Oh, uh, David, yeah, I have sinned. I have sinned, my son David. Please return to me. Please return to my court. And David, I promise this time will be different, and I will do you no harm. 
Yes, I know, I know, I know. I said this in the past as well, only for me to go back on my word. But David, this time, it's going to be different. This time, I really do see that my life is precious in your eyes. And David, this time, just, just trust me. Uh, I really do see that I've acted foolishly here. I've made a great mistake. However, time we get to chapter 28, we'll see this is the latest empty promise by Saul. This is just more of Saul's like cyclical, sinful behavior, where he just continues to run his mouth, where he continues to make promises he actually has no intentions in keeping. This is more like worldly sorrow rather than God-given grief, where there's repentance and faith. Verse 22, as David heard Saul's latest empty promise, we see him respond back, Saul, here is the king, O spear, or here is the spear, O king, and let one of your young men come up and take it. I'm actually going to give it to you. For, O king, I trust that the Lord rewards every man for righteousness and every man for his faithfulness. For it was the Lord who once again gave you in my hands today. But Saul, rather than taking your life, I continue to trust in the Lord. I did not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. I just keep saying it. This would not have been an easy thing to do. This would have been a weary thing to do. And think how easy it would have been for David just to throw his hands in the air. I'm done. I can't handle this anymore. I've done enough good to Saul. I can't do it anymore. All these parallels that we keep going through, they're driving me crazy. i got to end this. Right? That would have been the easy thing for David to do, to quit doing good. But in our text, verse 24, Saul, behold, as your life, O king, was once again precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he be the one who delivers me yet again out of all tribulation, which for David at this point, he had a lot of it. Even though David's still pretty young here, his life was not easy. A good portion of David's young life is either at war or on the run. Plenty of weary tribulation. Yet despite the many ups and downs for David, he sets his heart to trust in the Lord through this roller coaster of life that he's on, trusting that indeed God was good, and it was good for David to continue to do good to others, even though for David, so much of his life was not good. And finally this morning, our text ends, verse 25, if you want to take your eyes there. Saul, one last time, responding back to David. One last parallel, something he said previously, actually more than once in 1 Samuel. Blessed be you, my son David. Blessed be you, David, for you will do many things and you will succeed in them. Which is just more Saul running his mouth. And with that, in our text, the two men go their separate ways. With David going his way, and Saul returning back to his place, back home to Gibeah. Now, let's begin to close this time. I do want to finish where we started, and the ongoing encouragement in the New Testament, and what we've been talking about throughout the sermon, to not grow weary in doing good, which is always a concern for us. Because doing good, persevering in doing good, to keep saying it, is not easy. Keep saying it. It might be easy to start out doing good, but it's not easy to continue to do good over years and years and years, especially if those years are filled with so many ups and downs. 
So I want to finish off this time here just by using our four church pillars just to help us think through them and how they can apply to our call to not grow weary in doing good. So our first church pillar is just a pillar of worship. Now, I want to be clear here. So we do not do good with the hopes that God will accept our worship. That, that, that's not the Christian message. The New Testament tells us that it's by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, through Jesus' work on our behalf, that is how we are accepted by God. The work of Christ on the wooden cross, empty tomb. Right? That's the basis of our acceptance. That is how God delights in us, because he delights in Jesus, who is our representative. So here, here's the truth of the scripture. So we all have sinned. We all have fell short. In a very real sense, all of us have had a hand in crucifying Jesus Christ, who is the true Lord's anointed. And because we all have sinned, we actually all are filled with guilt. So there's none of us who are guiltless. But there's good news. The good news is that God in his love and his mercy sent his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for his people, to die in our place, to die to take on the punishment of our sin, only to rise again on the third day. And as mentioned, all who by faith turn from sin and turn to Jesus, listen, you would be accepted by God in ways that now you could worship him forever. For those of us who here who have faith in Christ, a very real part of our ongoing worship of Christ, and worship him for who he is, what he's done, is to walk in good works which God has prepared for us beforehand. The text is mentioned for David. Worship, this is at the center of this passage. Psalm 54. It's a great text on worship where David is seeking to worship the Lord despite the Ziphites betraying him yet again. And our text, when David confronted Saul from his safe location, what broke David's heart? That's how all these things that Saul was doing was hindering his worship, where he's not able to fully enjoy and share in the heritage of the Lord. Friends, for those who have faith in Jesus Christ and all the ups and downs in life, as maddening as the cynical patterns and parallels of life can be at times, do not grow weary in worshiping Jesus Christ. For those here who do not have faith in Christ, so I'd actually like to invite you right now to, to humble yourself and to turn from sin and turn and trust in Jesus Christ, to trust in his good works that he accomplished on our behalf on the cross and resurrection, where Jesus spilled his blood, where his blood fell to the ground for guilty sinners just like you. So friend, it's incredibly prideful to think somehow you can earn favor from God by doing good works. It's prideful because when you try to trust in yourself and your own good works, it's as if you think you don't need Jesus. For the church, do not grow weary in worship. Second pillar that we have is the pillar of connect. So let me give a couple of reasons why we do hope everyone in the church is connecting. So first, we, we really can't do good if we're not connecting with others. So in the scriptures, so much of doing good it involves doing good towards others, serving others, caring for others, encouraging others, using your spiritual gifts for others, including others that you might not necessarily like. In fact, Jesus even told us that even sinners 
love those who love them and do good to them. But for us, we are to love our enemies and do good towards them, which is the ongoing model of David in this text. His ongoing doing good towards Saul, who is not doing anything good for David. Friends, if we're going to do good as a means of worship, listen, we have to connect with other people. You can't do it in isolation. Second, if we're going to do good, we need to connect with others in ways that we're like we're helping each other to do good. I keep saying it, it is hard to do good, especially if you do it over time. It is weary work. So we need each other to help each other to not give up and give in to sin. And think about the cave in chapter 24. What did David do for his men who were with him there, who no doubt were weary because of being on the run? David, he helped them. He discipled them to know how and why they were to do good in sparing Saul's life. Same thing in our text today with Abishai. What did David do? David discipled him on how and why to do good, to once again spare Saul's life. Church, one of the reasons why we want to stay connected is to help each other to do good. By the way, for you who are new to Red Village or maybe visiting today, we would love for you to connect with us in ways that you can help our church family continue to do good. Red Village Church, do not grow weary in connecting. Third, our third pillar is grow. I actually do think one of the real ways that we grow in our faith is actually right here is by staying committed to do good, even when we're weary. One last time. The easy thing is to quit. The hard thing to do is to keep going, to keep trying to do good, to resist the temptation to throw your hands in the air and just like walk away from it all. Friends, if we're going to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ, we must persevere in doing good. Doing good even in all the parallels of life that might tempt us to be cynical, to be frustrated, exasperated. Listen, those times really are the times I think we actually grow the most, where we're trusting in the, Lord, in the end that the Lord will indeed reward every man for his righteousness and faithfulness, that we trust that our weary work, these labors, that are not in vain, that somehow the Lord is using them. Redville Church, do not grow weary in growing. Last one. Our last pillar is just go. So let me read the words of our Lord from Matthew's Gospel. So speaking of his people, which if you're a Christian today, this is speaking to you. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Which reminds us that when we connect, just can't be with each other. If we're going to truly worship the Lord and do good, we also must connect with those who not yet know Christ, people that God has already placed in your life. 
And friends, listen, if we're not connecting with those who do not yet know Christ, there's some type of issue that we need to work through. Our Lord calls us to go by by doing good and by proclaiming good news, the good news of Jesus Christ that the world desperately needs to hear. In fact, 13 years ago when we first started, that was the great hope that we have that God would somehow use us in ways that we would faithfully go to those around us with the message of Jesus Christ. That God would take us from here all the way to the ends of the earth. And even our church covenant that we signed almost 13 years ago simply says, and our members, please hear this, we will work together with great passion, zeal, and urgency to spread the gospel, the good news of Lord Jesus Christ to all the nations of the earth. Village Church, may we not grow weary in our call to go. That by God's grace, for many more years to come, we might see many others here in Madison and all throughout the world join us in proclaiming that the wooden cross, the empty tomb, really do mean everything because that is the greatest of all good. Let's pray. Lord, very grateful for all the things you've done in our church family over almost 13 years. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us to do the things you would have us to do. Help us to be found faithful. God, please help us to even link arms with one another in ways that we're just helping each other to do good. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you'd use our little church family here to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, the good news of the gospel, to those around us all the way to the ends of the earth. And uh, Lord, we do pray that you bring many to faith in Jesus. Praise on his name. Amen.